0: We'll go ahead and call the business meeting to order and thank all those for being here. And um, What I thought we might do is uh, go through our opening comments and have them out of the way so when we have a quorum we can move uh, quickly through the, through the calendar, if that's all right, Ranking Member.
1: Absolutely. Okay.
0: Uh, the Business Meeting Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We have a number of items on the agenda today, including three pieces of legislation, ten nominations, five foreign service lists. The first resolution, SRES 189, expresses the sense of the Senate regarding the 25th, 25th anniversary of democracy in Mongolia. We want to thank Senators Whitehouse and McCain for their work on this and congratulate the people of Mongolia on this significant milestone in their country's enduring commitment uh, to democracy. We have SRES 326, which celebrates the 135th anniversary of the U.S. and Romania diplomatic relations. Given the serious challenges that currently face Europe, the U.S., and the world, it's important to show friends like Romania that we support them. I want to thank Senator Johnson, Senator Shaheen uh, for your work on this uh, particular resolution. We also are going to consider SRES 320 congratulating the people of Burma on their commitment to peaceful elections. I would like to thank Senators McCain, McConnell, and Durban for introducing this important and timely resolution. As most of my colleagues know, the Republican leader has played an invaluable role in U.S. policy towards Burma over the years. I also want to thank Senator Cardin, Senator Gardner and their staff for working with us on a substitute amendment, Um, one to correct a a technical piece in the preamble and others to to signify importance of working with Congress on on future issues relative to, uh, to Burma. Um, Lastly, we're going to consider ten nominations and find five foreign service lists today. I realize there are three potential nominees not included on the agenda. Amos Hochstein to be Assistant Secretary for Energy Resources, Scott Marciel to be Ambassador to Burma, and Laura Holgate to be U.S. Representative to the IAEA and to the Vienna Office of the UN. Uh, We hope to work through uh, some issues we found with these nominees and put them on the agenda as soon as we get back. And With that, I want to thank uh, Senator Cardin and everybody on this committee for working with us the way they have um, and certainly would like to uh, hear his comments. Thank you,
1: Mr. Chairman. I'm just looking around to see how many people are here. Nine. I think we're we're one short, so I will give a longer opening statement. Uh, let, let, me, uh, let me thank you uh, for the way that you have accommodated the nominations, the ten uh, nominees that we'll be taking up. And your explanation, I understand there's still some additional information to the remaining three and that's certainly very much understandable. And I hope we can work through them quickly and also take action, uh, perhaps um, uh, somehow before the end of the session and still get them through the Congress before the, the end of the year, uh, Senate before the end of the year. I, but I really thank you for your cooperation. I hope that we can accommodate these nominees on the floor of the United States Senate. And with that, let me thank uh, on all three of the resolutions that we have before us. Uh, they're very important, uh, ones I fully support, and I congratulate the, the members who were involved, and I see we have ten members.
0: Thank you for those brief comments that were briefened by Senator Gardner showing up. First I would like to consider the two resolutions, SRF 189 and SRF 326 and blocked by voice vote. Do you have any comments you'd like to make on these resolutions?
1: Well, they're both very important, uh, both uh, uh, key progress and, and key allies that we have and I uh, urge our colleagues to support them.
0: Any other comments by others? Thank all. Um, if there's no further discussion, I would entertain a motion to approve by voice vote and block. Seven. Is there a second? Second. So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve SRES 189 and SRES 326. All those in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? The ayes have it. The resolutions are approved. NASA we'll consider SRS-320. Anyone like to speak to this resolution? Senator Gardner. Mr. Chairman, this is the uh, Burma resolution. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I, again, I think what, what we've watched
2: and seen in Burma over the last several months has been exciting. Uh, as the election results, I think overwhelmed even the most uh, studied, uh, studied uh, scholar uh, in Burma. And uh, people watching the elections, the results, I think, with great anticipation of what it means over the transition and the seating of the government by April. Uh, Obviously, we want to make sure that the tools and the leverage that the United States has isn't uh, given away uh, in a fashion that leaves us with no uh, ways to make sure that the transition occurs properly and to make sure that it's uh, put in place by April. And so I would just uh, express my gratitude to the committee for including language in the resolution that makes sure that uh, consultation and uh, advised consent of the Senate uh, and Congress is adhered to as we move through this transition period of
0: the election. Well, I want to thank you for that uh, very constructive input. And uh, I don't know if anyone else would wish to speak to this. Mr. Chairman, let me just say as I wear two hats here also as
1: the ranking on, this, uh, on the Pacific Southeast uh, uh, Asia subcommittee. And uh, Burma's made tremendous progress. There's no question about it, and this resolution recognizes that, and I uh, applaud Uh, the the sponsors of this resolution for the manner of bringing it forward. They still have many hurdles ahead of us as we pointed out during the hearing and I think the modifications we made in the
0: resolution is a balanced
1: resolution I strongly support it. If there's no
0: further discussion I would ask unanimous consent to consider the substitute amendment that includes edits from the chair and the East Asia subcommittee. So moved. Um, I would entertain a motion to consider the substitute amendment by voice vote. Is there a second? a second? So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve the substitute amendment. All those in favor say aye. Aye. All opposed. With that, the ayes have it. The substitute amendment is agreed to. Next I'll entertain a motion to consider the preamble amendment by voice vote. I'm sorry, this is just the way we do things. Is So moved. Is there a second? So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve the preamble amendment. All those in favor say aye. Aye. All opposed. With that, the ayes have it. The amendment is agreed to. Are there further amendments? Hearing none, is there a motion to approve the resolution as amended? Is there a second? Second. So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve SRS 320 as amended. All those in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The legislation as amended is agreed to. I will now ask the committee to proceed to an on-block voice vote in consideration of 10 nominations before the committee, Uh, Ebert Gray to Papua New Guinea et al., Feely to Panama, Tagliatella ambassador to Barbados et al., Todd Chapman to be ambassador to Ecuador, Jean Maines to be ambassador to El Salvador, Kathleen Hill to be ambassador to Malta. Ruben to be ambassador to Bulgaria, Scott to be ambassador to Serbia, Keane to be ambassador to Luxembourg, and Torres to be deputy director of the Peace Corps. I want to thank all of these nominees for being willing to come into these positions for their, uh, many of them for years and years of, of public service to our nation. And Senator Gardner, I'm sure you have some comments. Well, again, I appreciate the uh, the quick manner in
1: which these nominees were not only um, uh, brought to hearing, but also action in the committee, and I strongly support all the nominees.
0: Anyone else want to speak to these? Mr. Chairman, if
3: I could just briefly thank you uh, for working in a bipartisan collaborative way to move forward these nominees. I was just uh, over uh, at one of our missions in Europe and was reminded again of what the impact is when they don't have a confirmed uh, ambassador, heard a story of someone from Cameroon who was unable to have any productive meetings for a year because we didn't have a confirmed ambassador. So thank you for continuing to work on these.
0: Well, I want to thank the committee for uh, continuing to work in such a bipartisan manner. And if there are no further uh, discussion on these nominations, I would entertain a voice vote to pass them in block. Is there a second? So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve the nominations. All in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The nominations are recommended to the full Senate. And lastly, we will consider five foreign service officer lists. I support these appointments and promotions and would like to thank all these officers for their fine service. Senator card do you have any comments? Any comments uh, by others on the foreign service list? I would entertain a motion that we consider the list on block as modified by voice vote. <laughs> If someone would like to make that. Thank you. Is there a second? So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve five foreign service officer lists and block as modified. All those in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? With that, the ayes have it. And the appointments and promotions are agreed to. And that completes the committee's business. I'd ask unanimous consent that the staff be authorized to make technical and conforming changes and member statements without objection. So ordered. With that, without objection, the committee will stand adjourned as far as the business segment. And I want to thank uh, thank you all again for being here and causing this to work so well for all involved. It's much appreciated. Appreciated. That part is adjourned, and now we'll move to the uh, to the meeting before us. Now the hearing for the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee will come to order. And today's uh, uh, hearing, uh, by the way, I want to say in large part due to some things that Senator Cardin would like to look at, and I appreciate that, today's hearing will review the current operations and authority of the Millennium Challenge Corporation, the MCC created over a decade ago, was intended to, to take a unique approach to the development of foreign aid. As designed, the MCC provides economic development assistance for clearly defined economic objectives in full partnership with a developing country. MCC compacts are earned, not given. With a set of clear indicators that emphasize democratic governance and economic freedoms that determine selectivity, the MCC works with successful countries committed to establishing appropriate enabling environments in which entrepreneurship and economic growth can thrive. Uh, Furthermore, MCC is unique in that this process is strongly driven by data and transparency. Today we'll examine how MCC is fulfilling its original promise as an independent aid agency committed to identifying and removing constraints to economic growth, working in full partnership with the host country. It's my hope we can discuss both the lessons learned along the way, but also ways we can help improve the MCC model. Um, and I want to turn to Senator Cardin for his comments.
1: Well, Mr. Chairman, again, let me thank you for uh, bringing forward this hearing on the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Uh, I think my colleagues are aware that this program was established in 2004. It was unique in that it built upon U.S. ideals of entrepreneurship and good governance in order to do major infrastructure in a country, pretty much directed by that country but they need to be able to establish uh, that they are in fact uh, governed by democratic ish, uh, goals, that they have economic freedom, and they invest in their own people. So it's basically our values directed by uh, their priorities that leverage a great deal of, 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 of investment with strong accountability. And it's worked extremely well uh, during this period of time, and I think by all accounts it's been given a, a very high grade of developing the type of economic growth in these countries that will sustain uh, our values. What I had asked uh, the Chairman, along with Senator Flake, is that why shouldn't we be looking at regional uh, issues? When we look at the countries that are involved, when you deal with trade or you deal with transportation, you deal with energy, it doesn't end at one border. And why shouldn't we be able to use the same principles uh, to do regional uh, grants? And uh, that legislation was filed. It does present certain challenges. Uh, when accountability, it's different than how, do you, how is it working within this model. So I hope during the course of this hearing we'll have a chance to explore uh, that uh, expansion of authority and whether it would further advance the goals of a very successful program. I welcome our witnesses, and I look forward to the hearing.
0: Thank you. Our first witness for the panel, um, our first, our witness for the first panel is the Honorable Dana Hyde, Chief Executive Officer of the Millennium Challenge Corporation. We want to thank you for being here. I know you know well about testimony here. If you'd summarize in about five minutes, uh, we'll, without objection, take your full written statement uh, as part of the record. If you would begin, again, we thank you for your work and your willingness to be here today.
4: Thank you. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee. I am delighted to be here this morning and to have the opportunity to discuss the Millennium Challenge Corporation's work and our proposal to scale our investments uh, through regional work. Just over a decade ago, the Bush administration and Congress worked together to create an agency with just one focus, reducing poverty through economic growth. Now, this new agency was built on the lessons of decades of development, and it was charged with strengthening the U.S. effort to lift people out of poverty. Today, what started as a grand experiment is now an established and respected tool of U.S. international development. You do have my testimony, Mr. Chairman, and that details MCC's unique model and accomplishments So this morning I'd like to focus on just two areas. First, how MCC is catalyzing change and growth around the world. And second, how MCC can maximize our impact through regional investments. Simply stated, MCC is working to reduce poverty in three ways. First, by incentivizing countries to make meaningful reforms. Second, by funding projects with tangible outcomes and real impact. And third, by focusing on systemic change that will outlive MCC's engagement. As you know, countries must pass a scorecard to become eligible for compact assistance. This scorecard, an independent assessment of 20 key indicators, has proven to be a powerful incentive for countries to strengthen their democracies. Cote d'Ivoire is a prime example. Several years ago, they set out to pass the scorecard. At the time, they were failing 15 of the 20 indicators, including corruption. They established a special team within the Prime Minister's office that changed laws, including providing rights to women, and tightened controls on corruption. If you were traveling in Abidjan in 2013, you would have seen billboards across the city with warnings to officials and citizens about the consequences of corruption. These efforts paid off. In 2016, Cote d'Ivoire passes 13 of 20 indicators and is a candidate for selection for an MCC compact. Cote d'Ivoire illustrates how MCC's competitive approach incentivizes reform before a dollar of taxpayer money is spent. At the same time, projects themselves must be targeted to achieve real outcomes. I recently returned from Jordan, one of the most water-scarce countries in the world. There, MCC supported a public-private partnership to finance the expansion of the country's primary wastewater treatment plant. This PPP, one of the first in the country, leveraged $110 million, surpassing MCC's own $93 million investment. The compact is being completed on time, under budget, and is expected to benefit nearly 3 million Jordanians. By crowding in private investment, MCC is multiplying its impact many times over. The same is true in Ghana. In many ways, Ghana represents the evolution of and opportunities for MCC's work. In the first compact, MCC worked in many areas, roads, agriculture, and water. MCC's second compact is solely focused on energy and leveraging our credibility to support politically difficult reforms that will unlock barriers to private investment. In fact, MCC's reforms are already helping to catalyze more than $4 billion in private investment in Ghana's power sector, including General Electric's investment in a $1.8 billion power project. In these ways, MCC's compacts leave behind more than the sum of the projects. And we continue to pursue opportunities to increase leverage. In today's interconnected world, we believe regional investments in sectors like transportation or power represent that opportunity. In West Africa, for example, coordinating or pooling national grids is essential to increasing access to electricity. With a regional investment, MCC could concentrate our effort not just on one country, like Ghana, but on the hard and soft infrastructure necessary better to integrate power grids across borders. This summer, I was privileged to join some of the members of this committee at the AGOA conference in Gabon. Among the African delegates, the widespread view was that over the next decade, regional integration, will be a primary driver of economic growth on the continent. MCC risks missing opportunities and leaving development impact on the table if it focuses solely on engagements that stop at borders. With your support, regional investments can help turn the frontier markets of today into the emerging market partners of tomorrow. I am deeply grateful to Senators Cardin, Flake, Coons and Isaacson for introducing legislation that would give MCC this authority. Mr. Chairman, as I conclude, let me emphasize what you noted earlier this year when you said with limited aid dollars, it is is our responsibility to ensure American resources are used in the most effective manner possible. I can assure you the 300 professionals at MCC think about that responsibility every day. MCC is a lean and efficient agency that punches far above its weight. In a little over a decade, it's helped foster growth and promote American values around the world. And since day one, MCC has held itself accountable to Congress and to the American people. I want to thank you again for your time and your support of MCC's mission, and I would be delighted to answer your questions.
0: Well, again, thank you for being here. And I I do want to thank uh, Senator Flake, Senator Isaacson, Senator Card and Senator Coons for uh, looking at creative ways to cause MCC yeah. to have greater impact. You and I have met in the office, and and I understand the you know the purpose of MCC was to be transformative. I told you about one of my first trips to Mali, where I saw people, uh, you know, in extreme poverty, if you will, uh, you know, carrying things on their head down the street, and uh, yes donkeys and other kinds, and, and yet we were building this massive airport there and how, uh, candidly, I was having some difficulties connecting the two. I wonder if you might uh, explain to others here your thinking at that time and how that's evolved uh, uh, since that time.
4: Thank you. I appreciate the question, Mr. Chairman. Um, MCC's thinking has and work has involved in a number, evolved in a number of important ways. Um, I would say that the principles that MCC was founded on, which are um, that countries themselves have to be full partners in the development effort in order for it to be sustainable, um, and how that relates to our actual work in project selection and in how we evaluate projects is certainly one of the lessons that we've learned. So, for example, I believe at the time of the Mali Compact, it was one of our first compacts. I think it was shaped in year three of what was a startup at the time. At the time, we did not have in place uh, an economic analytic tool, which is called the constraints to growth analysis, which is the way we engage now, today, with countries to say, what are the binding constraints (coughs) to growth in this economy? And how do we go from 30,000 feet down to a project? We also put in place uh, a cost-benefit analysis to do an economic rate of return for every project that we do, and we're looking to achieve a 10% ERR. These are both um, lessons that we learned over the years uh, and that we believe put more rigor and accountability around our projects. Um, So I would say those are two two things in place that were not in place at the time of the Mali Compact. Uh, Now, at the end of that compact, as you know, um, there was a coup in Mali, uh, and MCC actually terminated its compact um, because uh, of the accountability framework that we work in that you have to maintain the governance standards throughout the life of our compact. Mm
0: -hmm. So whatever happened to the airport?
4: The airport itself uh, was completed uh, by another contractor. Uh, I believe it was Molly's uh, funds with another donor that came in uh, to finance it. There was also some question, just a factual question, Mr. Chairman, about what you saw. Our work was mostly around the runway, rehabilitation, and the renovation of one of the terminals. So I'm I'm, I'm not actually clear of what what it was.
0: So, you know, and I, it's interesting, I know, and I don't think you were running MCC at the time, and yes. I know things have evolved, and, and, but can you say to us today that, again, this $800 million to a billion or whatever that's being spent yes. outside of USAID is something that's uh, creating transformative effects within these countries? And could you very briefly uh, just name sure. a couple of those transformative sure. uh, operations?
4: Okay. Yes. Let me name five for you very briefly. Um, The first that I'd mention is what I'd known as the MCC effect, that countries, particularly in Africa, where the penetration of the portfolio has been 65 percent over the decade, are striving to get to eligibility for MCC. Um, And they are, in fact, changing their laws so that they can pass the scorecard so they can have compacts with MCC. We think that's very transformative. I know laws for women in Lesotho, in Cote d'Ivoire, in Sierra Leone in other countries uh, have been changed because of that. Um, Second, I I mentioned the accountability framework. Uh, Over the decade, MCC has signed 32 compacts with 26 countries. We have terminated assistance on six times. We have held countries accountable for maintaining their governance not just at the front end but through the duration of the compact. Uh, And I would say that that is uh, a really notable and distinct accomplishment of a donor agency. Um, Third, in terms of economic rates of return, um, many agencies do not assess uh, a cost-benefit analysis. MCC does a very rigorous cost-benefit analysis and we do it before and after completion of a compact in addition to independent evaluations. So we're looking at the front end for a 10% ERR We've recently uh, evaluated 58 projects. This is as of this October that closed that that was worth about $3 billion. We're finding on average across that portfolio the ERR at closeout was 16 percent. So we're we're meeting those output targets. Um, Finally, I would just note in terms of building big infrastructure in the developing world, um, MCC in a decade has built a reputation on being able to design scope to the highest standards in some of the most difficult places on the globe, building roads, building bridges, building power transmission facility in, in a decade.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I know when we go to, um countries like Pakistan and other places. They're constantly talking with us about these big signature projects that the Chinese and others are doing, and we're not. So it's interesting you would point to that. Let me ask just one last question. I know we have two panels today. Um, the, the threshold, mm-hmm. the, the issues of dealing with some of these the threshold money, and I guess you all are asking for 10% and President asked for very little and it's been at five. Mm -hmm. That, for what it's worth, feels very much like moving away from signature projects, moving Mm -hmm. away from transformative projects towards doing the same thing, if you will, that USAID is doing. So why would you venture into that territory when you just uh, got through talking about uh, doing things that are transformative?
4: Yeah, I appreciate the question. So that we, MCC has essentially two product lines. On average, a compact uh, over a decade has been roughly $350 million. The threshold size over a decade is roughly 22. Uh, The portfolio over a decade has been $10 billion, $9.5 billion put toward compacts in those 26 countries, half a billion dollars uh, against many more threshold programs. The threshold program was significantly revised in 2012 and paired back. Right now it is 5 percent of the portfolio. Uh, there are three countries that are actively implementing threshold programs, so it's very small. I would say it's important, though, for these objectives. There are countries that start working with us, and I mentioned the MCC effect, this real sort of incentive effect for countries to get the gold standard, to get the good housekeeping seal. There are countries that start years back, Cote d'Ivoire was one of them, um, and they're striving to make the scorecard and to make the changes, and they take many years. Uh, Last year, their trend lines were up. They were on the cusp of it, um, and the board awarded them a threshold program to start, a very small investment so we could test their commitment, and so they could come forward with some sort of engagement, formal engagement with us in the United States. Uh, This year, a year later, the board will consider whether to give them a compact. One of the important changes that we made in the threshold program is that either a threshold program or a compact both start with the constraints analysis. And that analysis takes about eight months, ten months to complete between the economists. So there's no time lost in the fact that Cote d'Ivoire has been a threshold partner for a year. It will ripen in to be May, depending upon the decision of the board. Uh, a compact partner. Uh, The same was true of Nepal, which started as a threshold partner and then became a compact partner. Um, So we think both from the ability to uh, sort of test the waters with a partnership, uh, to do so in a small, limited way uh, that we don't lose any time or traction because we're engaged in the analytic exercise, that it makes sense in that context, and that's the context in which the threshold program is here today.
0: Thank you. Senator Carden. Thank you very much uh,
1: for your leadership here. And as I said in my opening statement, I'm a strong supporter of MCC. I think it has been responsible for not only dealing with poverty issues, but also dealing with good governance issues and uh, dealing with important security issues. Um, I know Jim Colby will be on the the second panel. Um, I was in the House and and saw his work in his leadership position recognizing how development assistance was critically important to U.S. security issues, and uh, if there's a father of this program, it's Jim Colby, so it's nice to have Jim here and I thank you very much for your continued uh, interest in in this area. Uh, As you point out, there are performance indicators that Mm -hmm. need to be complied with, which I'd like. It's accountability and it shows that we have real standards in order to decide where we will do a compact compact state. Uh, And you you gave a a good example on corruption, anti-corruption efforts. But as I understand, I'm going to drill down a little bit more on this because I think we've learned over the course of the last decade that corruption is extremely difficult to deal with and we need to leverage the best we can all of our programs. My understanding is the indicator on anti-corruption is basically a a, a pass-fail grade based upon your relative uh, efforts to your neighbors in the region. So we use a curve. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. would call that an exam in college, you know, if you had a weak class, you could get by. Uh, Is there a way that we can be more directive on any corruption activities? It seems to me that we are developing Mm -hmm. universal standards that need to be met for a country to be serious in fighting corruption. No country will be corruption free. We know that. But there are good practices, and in certain regions we need lighthouse type of countries that are willing to really step forward. Yes. And it seems to me that the MCC could be helpful in that regard.
4: Uh, thank you, Senator, for the question. MCC is certainly seeking to drive a conversation among producers and consumers of corruption data about how we can continue to improve the data that we all use. What's interesting is that the business community very much is interested in sound data around corruption in countries, and developing countries, um, and that there are a multitude of sources and producers for this. Uh, To that end, we've convened what's known as the Governance Data Alliance, uh, which is seeking to improve this information, and we're doing a number of of specific things under that umbrella. Um, I would say with respect to the median idea, it is is the case that MCC is tracking corruption on an annual basis uh, by the best indicator that we know, albeit imperfect. Um, For indicators, our primary practical challenge is that we need an indicator that has global coverage, that can compare Nepal to Niger uh, and that is updated regularly on an annual basis. That in itself narrows the world for MCC as to what indicators actually meet those standards. Um, And that is why these, these forums that we engage with to continually improve are very important. The way it works, Senator, is that um, low-income countries, as defined by the World Bank, are judged against each other. That would be both Nepal and Niger. And lower-middle-income countries are judged. Uh, And that we're looking for countries in the upper half of the median. But importantly, we're looking at trend lines. And I think this is something that that does get us a little bit beyond the pass-fail, because we're looking whether a country is on an upward track trajectory over a period of years or down, um, and both are significant as we think about decision making.
1: Well, I, th- I thank you for that answer. I, w- I would just point out uh, by comparison, we are looking, this committee is looking at uh, global standards on fighting corruption. We've learned our lessons from trafficking. We have pretty yeah. ob- objective standards on how countries need to, pr- to deal with trafficking issues. Yeah. Each country is different, uh, <laughs> but we have universal standards that the United States has developed and, and no, it's not a passing or failing, we do have gradations there. Uh, and I understand you have to make a decision, but I do h- hope that you would be more aggressive because, to me, this is mm-hmm. one of the most mm-hmm. difficult areas yes. uh, that fight for uh, good governance. Uh, so uh, improving mm-hmm. in this area, I think, would be important. I, I want to move on to the, the regional compact mm-hmm. uh, and the legislation that, that, that we brought forward There's a great great deal of interest in this. You you mentioned Nepal. Nepal uh, and India are looking at ways that they could either deal with transportation or energy on a regional basis in which the uh, compact Mm -hmm. could be very helpful. And in East Africa and West Africa, Senator Coons has been talking a good deal about projects in in those regions where we have compact countries individual, but if we could do it collectively, we might be able to get uh, further along on that. In our own hemisphere in Central America, we have a compact country, but we could do more the similar problems on trade, similar problems on transportation, energy, et cetera. <coughs> so if you had that authority, mm-hmm. how would you use the evaluation process, considering that the performance indicators are country specific, how do you deal with that if you had regional authority How do we know that we still will be able to get the same type of progress, leveraging of private sector investment, and accountability if you had regional authority?
4: Thank you, Senator. I appreciate the question. As you mentioned, um, the theory of the case in today's global economy for regional investments is quite strong, uh, particularly when you have a tool of U.S. development whose only mission is economic growth, fighting poverty through growth. Um, so uh, we believe that is, uh, that is clearly there and has been proven. Uh, the challenge is more in the logistics and the operational complexity of this. MCC would maintain the same standards that is for uh, the scorecard and for approval. So we'd be looking for those few places on the globe where there are contiguous countries next to each other who are passing the scorecard, who are fairly stable in passing the scorecard, um, and who themselves are looking for opportunities to integrate. Um, I think our starting point for this uh, could likely be in Africa. Uh, I say that because MCC is a brand and an asset of the United States that is well known in Africa, particularly in West Africa, where the penetration of our portfolio has been the greatest. Um, and we see, be it through Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, a number of investments that we have made that. Um, that perhaps could have had a higher value if we would have thought about how to cross borders. It may be in energy, it may be in transportation. The implementation modality, um, I think we would continue, we have to continue to make this a country-led enterprise. Um, And we have done that through accountable entities that are created. In this case, it would need to be cross borders that would work together. Um, And we'd have to be mindful of the idea that if there was a governance stumble in one of the countries um, that we would have to bifurcate and sever that investment and still make part of that investment valuable. Um, But our eyes are wide open about those challenges. Ten years ago, I would not have recommended that MCC launch into this space. Today, I think it is uniquely positioned uh, for the reasons that you've mentioned. First of all, the credibility capital, not that we have everywhere, but we have in some regions where we have had large penetration. Um, second of all, the fact that MCC has worked in infrastructure, has in power and roads, and that's vital. This is what these are, these are looking for. Um, and third, because MCC's instrument is grant assistance, and you mentioned the private sector. These deals will not get done without private investment. Um, And there is some debt financing out there as well. Uh, The grant assistance could be what actually pulls them together with the United States involvement. So I think those are three reasons why it could work.
0: Thank you. Governor Flake.
5: Thank you. And thank you for the (laughs) testimony and thank you for what you're doing at the MCC. With regard to these regional compacts, uh, (coughs) I'm happy to be part of the legislation, giving the authority and to hope uh, we can get it through. Can you talk about uh, Southern Africa? There's some possibilities with Zambia, yes. uh, Tanzania, and Malawi. Uh, yeah. What are we looking at there? Uh,
4: in that area of the region in particular, we think there are interesting power opportunities, um, certainly between Zambia and Tanzania. Uh, we also There's also uh, the need for water infrastructure and agriculture and irrigation, uh, and road and border crossings. So. Those three countries as well are countries that we have with Mozambique uh, scoped out in a very broad sense what are some potential projects to work there. Um, we're at the very early stages of this. We would need uh, copious diligence on each one of them before selecting where we would go. Right.
5: Can you tell us about the kind of the intersection between the MCC and uh, our Power Africa initiative that's uh, yes, been undertaken yes, now? Yes,
4: so, uh, MCC, I mentioned before, undertakes at the front end a constraints to growth analysis. And that is economists, usually from the finance ministry of whatever country we're partnering with, together with MCC economists. It takes upwards of a year. um, And at the end of that, there is a high-level buy-in of what the binding constraints are to growth. What we have seen for quite some time is that energy poverty, the lack of reliable electricity, is again and again a binding constraint to growth in Africa. So, that um, that's the premise through which that MCC is part of Power Africa. It's under that principle. It's under the principle uh, that it is to be a country-led program. Uh, and I have had more than one head of state of an African country call me directly and ask me specifically to engage in energy. I would say the third. Uh, element to what these countries and these partnerships are asking for is they want American investment uh, and they see a lot of opportunities and energy through that as well. So we are we are a participant in Power Africa um, but we are doing so under the MCC model.
5: Following on one of the questions that Senator Cardin had about some of the challenges uh, with these regional compacts, suppose you have uh, two countries enter into a, a compact for mm-hmm. uh, some electricity project or power generation project. Um, One country uh, has a coup two years later into the compact. What do we do?
4: We scope and design an investment at the front end that takes account of that possibility um, and looks at economic rates of return if we were to undertake the interventions on just one side of the border or the other. Um, The assumption is that there will be greater returns if we do it across the border. Um, but I still would think we couldn't do a project that was nothing um, in terms of its own value to the country uh, because of that possibility. So sure. I, think, I think it's a challenge in design and in diligence and certainly a risk assessment of uh, where we select. If MCC were to receive this authority, I think we would be cautious, uh, start slowly. Um, not undertake a lot at the front end and prove the concept.
5: So there is a political risk analysis done. Yes. With yes, yes, yes.
4: Working with State Department. Absolutely. There- Absolutely. All
5: right. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you,
6: Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, uh, Ms. Hyde, let me. Uh, I want to pursue a line of questioning so I understand some of the uh, apportionment of MCC. And uh, I've been a strong supporter of it since its creation. Uh, but I look at development assistance as a whole and mm-hmm. whatever we do in MCC, you know, AID and other elements are affected by it. And I think MCC has done great work. But my understanding is that the MCC board has approved 33 compacts in 26 countries totaling about $11 billion. Is that about right?
4: I, I, my number I have is 32, um, okay. but I, I'd be happy to figure out what the discrepancy is there.
6: Yes. Okay. Uh, how about the other parts? About 26 countries? about 26
4: 11. countries, 32 compacts. Um, over the decade, roughly 10 billion. In year 11, uh, uh, about 11 billion. So okay. year to date, yes.
6: Now, of that, MCC's uh, 32, 33 signed compacts, 19 are with African countries spanning the continent. Is, is that a fair statement? Yes. So that, uh, from my calculations, totals about $7.4 billion, or about 67% of MCC's total compact portfolio. So uh, I've been a strong supporter of development in Africa. I think it is an incredibly important continent uh, in many different iterations to US uh, interests. Uh, But I'd like to understand then the breakdown for other regions. Uh, If roughly two-thirds of the MCC's efforts are directed to Africa, that leaves one-third for the remainder of the world, Latin America, which I have a great interest in, Uh, the Middle East, the former Soviet Union, Asia. So can you talk to me about the factors that you all uh, assess? Uh, I mean, I'm familiar with the MCC of what you need to qualify. but how do you all go about looking at the world in the context of your focus? Uh, What factors describe the disproportionality? Um, And uh, are you all looking at this as part of your uh, overall evaluation about where you're working in the world?
4: Thank you, Senator. I appreciate the question. I'd be happy to tell you how we got to that. Um, The starting point for selection and eligibility under the statute is that MCC is to work with uh, low income and lower middle income countries as as defined by the World Bank. That's roughly a GNI of 0 to 2,000 and 2,000 to 4,000. Uh, Ten years ago, there were 113 countries in the globe. Today, there are 81. Um, So there's been about a 30% reduction. Um, Those countries uh, are, I are mainly in Africa. They're elsewhere in the globe, Um, but uh, I know, for example, South America has very few such countries, so that's the starting point. From there, MCC is to apply the scorecard, uh, which is a filter that has a hard hurdle around corruption and a hard hurdle around democracy. Those are two must-pass above the median, uh, and then the other indicators, it's 10 overall of the scorecard. Um, This year, In 2016, there are 29 countries that passed the scorecard. Um, Roughly eight of them are small islands uh, with less than a million people. So uh, MCC's selection process uh, through the filters that are both in statute uh, and through the scorecard, which uh, is critical to our accountability framework, uh, end up filtering out much of the globe. That said, MCC has worked in all three of the Northern Triangle countries uh, in Guatemala, in Honduras, and in El Salvador. Uh, In fact, is there currently in our smaller threshold program with a compact in El Salvador. Uh, The board selections last December were all outside of Africa. The board selected Nepal, Mongolia, uh, and the Philippines as partners. Um, And we see countries rising in Southeast Asia. but the, the, the result of, of where we're working uh, is, in large measure, uh, the combination of the candidate pool, as defined by statute, as well as uh, the scorecard. So
6: if 81 countries in the world uh, are potentially qualified in the first instance, and that whittles down to 29 after the uh, filtering of, of your standards, and eight of them are small islands of less than a million people, that's about 21 countries that actually can be considered. And so I'd like to get from you, not necessarily at this moment, but I'd like to get from you, what are those 21 countries? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because you have to look at a billion dollars and think about what is it that you're doing vis-a-vis the universe of who is eligible. Because if at the end of the day only a certain universe is eligible, sure. then I have to look at development assistance as it relates to the amount of money versus the universe that I can potentially spend it in. Even though I believe MCC standards is incredibly important, yes. I also know that the development pot is limited at yes. the end of the day. So I'll, And that may affect how I or others might look at what USAID does, separate and apart from NCC, and how their focus should be, uh, so that when we put it all together, we understand the development in the world. Because I I, I see within the Western hemisphere Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a limited number of countries that meet both the standards and the filtering, but I see some great needs, as is evidenced by the fact of. uh, uh, you know, citizen security, children coming to the United States. I see a real impact on U.S. interests as a result of that, and I don't see us. And I look at AID and the cuts uh, on AID to Latin America. So I say, okay, so what are we doing about the hemisphere in which we live in, and in which we have a direct interest in terms of our security, our economics, because citizens of the Western Hemisphere most likely will seek american products and services more so than in other parts of the globe and we have a population problem as it relates to those who seek refuge either from uh, violence of their governments or violence of uh, gangs and other uh, and narco trafficking and whatnot so I'm trying to, yeah. strong support of the MCC, I don't want you to get me wrong, but I'm trying to look at the total development dollars and figuring out how we look at that as it relates to our needs. And so in that context, I look forward to your answer. I'd be
4: happy to follow up. Thank you. I'd be happy to follow up with you specifically. I, I should have clarified that uh, with respect to those 21 countries, MCC is already engaged with many of them. So many of them are already current partners, um, relatively few new partners. Um, Uh, would be one point to that. But I'm happy to provide you with a list specifically of what they are for you to take a look at. Um, In addition to that, I would just say, raising a a more global point, that um, we know over the decade that there has been a shift in the landscape of poverty. Uh, MCC's only mission is to address poverty through growth, and poverty looks different than it did 10 years ago. Uh, So there may be reasons uh, to relook at what that uh, landscape is and how we measure it, and we would welcome the opportunity to engage on that.
0: And, and when you say that, when you say it's different, there's lesser of it. Is that what you're saying? There,
4: there absolutely, there is lesser of it. Um, there's also more concentrations, as you've heard, in urban areas and in cities. Uh, there's also uh, the particular measure that we use by statute um, looks at GNI as opposed to individuals, households, and pockets of poverty. Um, and so mineral wealth and natural resource wealth can uh, raise a country's yeah. GNI when there is a very large percentage of that population living under $2 a day. Um, so I think you may hear more about this in the second panel, but I think it's, 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 it's worth examining.
0: Senator Perdue.
2: Well, Ms. Hyde, thank you. I, I really fully respect what you're doing. God bless you for, for doing it. I have just four quick questions, yep. and, and I'd, I'd love the first two would be uh, hopefully uh, quick answers. Okay. But before you know, let me try to put this in perspective. In 1965, we, had, we started basically the war on poverty in the United States. Yep. And unfortunately today, the poverty rate's basically the same as it was when we signed the <laughs> Great Society. In addition to that, in the last seven years, just to pick seven years when our debt has really sort of skyrocketed, we've spent about $125 billion between USAID and MCC. These are round numbers and directionally correct. And of that 125 billion, we borrowed $50 billion. So that means that 40% of every uh, billion dollars we spend with MCC every year, we have to go to China and Japan and to our own Mm -hmm. Federal Reserve to fund that. And so every dime that we spend is very critical. In addition to that though, I will say we've got a model and that is Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore based on four things, water, power, infrastructure, and an educated workforce went from a swamp to mm-hmm. a major economy today. Mm-hmm. So I think you're on the right track. I love your mission, mm-hmm. uh, reducing poverty through economic growth. I heard, through economic growth, I heard though just a minute ago, American values slip in there. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanna come back to that later. Mm-hmm. I know that's one of the prerequisites, mm-hmm. but I, I'm concerned about that in one way. Let me just ask a couple of questions. I, I'm sub, uh, chair of this subcommittee, and you and I are gonna get to know each other a lot over the next couple okay. of years, I hope. <laughs> uh, and I fully respect what you do. but. To whom do you report?
4: I report to a board that is uh, both public and private sector, nine members, five. Who,
2: who oversees that board? Secretary Kerry. Thank you. And um, of the 58 programs you're talking about, the compacts, about $3 billion, 16% internal rate of return. Um, I would love that if I were mm-hmm. you. That's good over, mm-hmm. uh, over that. What's been the poverty reduction of those 58 compacts?
4: Well, the evaluations of many are still underway. Um, cost benefit, we're looking at dollars we actually spent at closeout and our projections of beneficiaries. We are independently evaluating 100% of the program. Um, and those valuations, I don't know if the alignment is between the 58, we have about 50 that have been completed. Uh, in terms of results of those independent impact evaluations, MCC has set the bar higher than outputs which is often, sometimes inputs are measured, there's outputs. We're looking to see if we can find income raises. Or so
2: in, in 10 years, we don't have any programs where we can measure the impact on poverty?
4: We have 50 uh, programs that have undertaken rigorous outside independent valuations, and these are projects. Right. Uh, we have uh, a mixed record, and for many reasons we think so far. Um, we have seen income raises in some of our agricultural projects in Ghana farming projects. We have seen with respect to the roads, for example, let me just give you an example quickly, Uh, we... So
2: I'm sorry to interrupt, I know these are anecdotal examples and they're great. I I fully respect that. One of the concerns I have is you spread a billion dollars across X number of compacts, Mm -hmm. do we really spend enough in any one country to really have an impact on poverty? And if so, why can't we measure it? Mm -hmm. You may not be able to answer today, but that's where I'm going in the future is to say, okay, if that's our mission, Let's get there. You you do you guys do a great job of mm-hmm. quantitative evaluation. I, I will give you high marks on that. Mm-hmm. I'm concerned about a couple of anecdotal um, incidents, though. I, I visited your your team mm-hmm. in Indonesia, in mm-hmm. Jakarta. Mm-hmm. Very impressive people. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. great hearts. Mm-hmm. But I was very troubled that over half the money we're spending in Indonesia is spent on a, a green um, power project. I, I, I don't know remember I don't remember the mm-hmm. name of it, but. Mm-hmm. Um, And it had no cost-benefit analysis. And then in Tanzania, another about 285 billion, uh, or million rather, spent um, on a similar energy project that had no cost-benefit analysis on the front end. Can you help me with why those energy projects in two different instances did not have a cost-benefit analysis?
4: Thank you, and I'll try to be quickly because I know sure. you're trying to get through a lot. So, uh, well, ER- it's your
2: time now. You no, can go no.
4: on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know if there were more. Um, ERRs in Indonesia. In Indonesia, we did it more as a financing facility that wants to have private sector match. So we couldn't um, do a cost-benefit because we didn't know what the call for proposals would bring in. So the way that's working is that uh, it's mostly small and medium enterprises. It's in rural Indonesia. Um, we've signed a dozen plus of them. Each one of them has had a matching component from the private sector. But, but basically, our,
2: these were green energy. In our selection, production. we're
4: doing ERRs. We are doing them. We just didn't do them at the front end because we actually didn't know what projects we were going to fund. It was a financing facility. Um, in Tanzania, uh, we have not. The board has not approved that compact. That compact will not be approved without the ERRs. There's data underway. Um, clearly not going to happen. And so no the problem.
2: question is, when we look at a project like that in Indonesia, in a business, you would look at alternatives, right, and see which yes. one had the best. Yes. So you're, yes. you're looking at a green project, and that therein lies one of my concerns about American value and the intervention in that in your very high-regarded uh, mission of reducing poverty through economic growth. Sure. I can do one, yeah. but when the other gets yeah. in the way of this, yeah. then I have to say that's a constraint yeah. that helps me or, or hinders me in, in reaching my objective. Yep. So in Indonesia, I'm, I'm concerned about that one point because I've been in those villages. I've, owned, I've, I've operated factories in Indonesia. Yep. Mm-hmm. The, they need power, there's no question. Mm-hmm. Putting a green power generating unit in there may not be the, best, uh, the most cost effective. So did you look at alternative ways to get power into that community?
4: Uh, in Indo- those
2: communities. Sorry.
4: In, in Indonesia, we started with the constraints analysis. We worked with a core team of Indonesians who themselves were putting on the table that they wanted to look at renewable sources of energy. Uh, I think the constraints spoke quite a bit about the degradation uh, of the land outside of the capital uh, around these issues and that it was the Indonesians idea to come forward and do this. Uh, From an American values perspective, uh, to the extent I use that phrase, it's often in connection with the scorecard. So, top line values of of good governance, corruption, rule of law, very much reflective. I I didn't mean to speak to that in terms of the context of a program, because the programs are, and this is much more challenging, quite candidly, uh, very much a country-led within an accountability framework. Right, thank you. So that's-
2: Yeah, one last question. when we spent about a billion dollars in MCC and about 17 billion in USAID. Yes. And I think both have about the same overhead, it's about 10% in your, but you have a little more uh, review and monitoring, I I think expense and maybe USAID. You're teaching people to fish instead of just giving them fish. So there's a fundamental difference, I get that. Help me with the fact that, given the earlier debt conversation that we had, um, Mm -hmm. why MCC, what is, Different here. I understand you have two different, you said, um, products, I think, or, or efforts. Um, why couldn't that be, or why can't that be, housed inside a bureaucracy that we already have?
4: Mm. Well, I think both are critical. Uh, I think they're very different models, both being MCC and USAID. Uh, top line, uh, USAID is across the globe, MCC is working with roughly two dozen high performers objective standards. Second of all, MCC uh, is only focused on growth, and that is a multi-sectoral approach in a country mix that's going to look different in every country because of the third principle of country-led and how important it is to teach them to fish. Uh, As you know, we don't work in humanitarian assistance, conflict, refugee relief. We don't set global targets for health, global targets for education. We're looking at those countries and looking to burrow deep and go deep into the platform. Um, so those are, those are top line differences between USAID and MCC. We are extremely lean. Um, I mentioned that there are 300 professionals at MCC undertaking this whole program. Uh, when we have that program on the ground, there will be two people from Americans, MCC, uh, and those will be Indonesians uh, leading that program with a board of Indonesians managing the program. So it's it's a very distinct model.
2: Good, good answer. I
0: I really again applaud what you're doing. Thank you. I Thank look you. forward to working Thank with you. you. Thank you. you. Before Senator turn to Senator Coons, yes. I just think since we have another panel that's coming up, some support MCC, some don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we left something hanging there, and I appreciate the the line of questioning. But you mentioned American values relative to the scorecard, mm-hmm. uh, yes/no mm-hmm. answer. Uh, are there any pressures on mcc to be involved in projects that really in some cases have something to do with pursuing a social purpose that's other than just basic economic growth uh, for the citizens there yes no
4: no there's a database of everything evidence based for everything mcc is doing i mean that's M- mcc is I'm not sure, Senator, Mr. Chairman, what you mean. Well, I I think you you understood the questioning was,
0: it sounded like that maybe energy was being pursued that was maybe not, as uh, economical, if you will, and not as driving towards economic growth as otherwise might have been the case, and I is there it's, I, I mean, you just need to answer that yes or no because yeah. it will become an issue.
4: Now, I, I was told, particularly in Indonesia, diesel is very expensive, so we're looking at cost benefit. We're looking at what the country wants. I would say the two principles are whether the constraints analysis has led us there and whether the country, the Indonesia team, is putting these ideas on the table. So this is, that's how we get to what we're doing.
0: Senator Coons.
3: Thank you, uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin for convening this hearing. uh, And uh, Ms. Hyde, great to see you again. Uh, I've had the opportunity to visit MCC projects on the ground in Ghana, in Benin, in Senegal, in Cabo Verde, uh, in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I have to say, uh, your model, what MCC has been doing since launched uh, by leaders in Congress and the Bush administration, Uh, I am a huge supporter. Uh, I am convinced that it is a different way to do development. Senator Perdue just cited some very large numbers in terms of our foreign aid spend, the vast majority of which is on Iraq, Afghanistan, Israel, Pakistan. You are a very small part of our total foreign aid spend and with a very different model, um, as I've seen it and as as you've laid out, very data-driven, very analytically based, with a very light footprint. Uh, country ownership, country leadership, longer-term partnerships. Uh, I think one that in the places that I have visited allows us to compete directly with China by being a partner in, del- in designing, delivering, and developing quality infrastructure, not quantity infrastructure, not massive projects, mm-hmm. but sp- for example, the, the port in Benin uh, that I visited, the power generation project out to Zanzibar, mm-hmm. um, what I saw in upcountry Ghana with uh, Senator Isaacson, quality infrastructure projects. Um, But most importantly, in my view, is what you call the MCC effect. I can't tell you how many African heads of state have lobbied me personally on trying to get into MCC without having to meet uh, the indicators around corruption or transparency or media. Uh, And I'm just going to take off for a moment on that point about American values. In a data-driven, analytical, transparent way that tries to crowd in private investment, you are, in my view, advancing some of our most core American values, which are that economic growth is sustainable when it occurs in an environment of transparency, rule of law, respect for rights, uh, and where corruption is uh, persistently uh, tackled. So uh, I do think you're advancing American values, but not in a way that's outside of these indicators. So um, the thing I mostly wanted, and I do agree with Senator Menendez's point, I, I advocate for MCC and appropriations. I wish there were a broader, more robust funding stream to allow a broader range of compacts. Mm-hmm. The good news is that over the last decade, uh, extreme poverty has, re- has been reduced, and the number of countries you can work with has gone down. So your, your focus is overwhelmingly Africa in recent years, because that's where mm-hmm. a deep poverty, but with the constraints you look at, remains. Um, I'm conscious of uh, situations in Southern Africa, East Africa, West Africa, where there's very little trade between countries, and these are not large countries. Many of them trade more with Europe than they do with each other, with countries literally 50 miles or 100 miles away. Mm -hmm. Just walk through one more time. I'm grateful for Senator Cardin's leadership on this MCORE bill. Why will regional compact authority allow you to accelerate what your models made possible, and what are your intentions in terms of dealing with some uh, legitimate questions raised by Senator Flake, Senator Corker, and others, about uh, the risks inherent in going into a, a slight expansion, an expansion of the model that would allow you to engage with several countries at once in a commonly designed project.
4: Thank you, Senator Kins. So let me try and tackle that quickly. Um, the, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, the economies of scale argument that you reference, Africa, let's take Africa, 54 fragmented, very small markets. Um, at the same time, the largest uh, and fastest rising middle class on the globe in terms of the opportunity for American businesses, six of the 10 fastest growing economies. Um, Africa itself is uh, seeking and it has really made some progress over the last couple decades in terms of the political will to undertake integration. Um, this is something that we heard from the African Union, uh, certainly in Gabon, I spoke to many finance ministers about this directly. What they need now is the support on the infrastructure. Um, There's both a hard side and a soft side to getting to regional integration in Africa. Um, There's obviously harmonization of tariff structures and reforms as well as building those roads and building those border crossings and whatnot. Um, I think MCC is viewed in Africa as a, I'm speaking generally here, but as a trusted uh, partner of the United States that can help bridge both sides of that, both the soft considerations as well as the hard considerations. Um, I certainly know from speaking with the private sector uh, that uh, the project prep uh, funds uh, as well as uh, viability gap financing is what could help make these deals possible. Um, I don't expect that MCC's portfolio would um, balloon in regional work because it is so hard. So as I said earlier, I think MCC has to be very careful about the countries we pick. Uh, about the sector and the project that we pick um, and start slowly and responsibly to prove the concept um, because there is obviously that component of it here.
3: Well, in my experience uh, in Africa, it's striking that the the lines on the map that that divide countries were often drawn fairly arbitrarily a century ago by European powers. And so they do not rationally reflect uh, where water systems are, where transportation systems are, where population centers are, or where economies are growing, and they remain real constraints. And our engaged, um, thoughtful leadership that is uh, outcomes-oriented and data-driven can pull together regional markets in terms of energy and infrastructure. The private sector investors I talked to, and I I just met the other day with one of the biggest French banks that invests uh, heavily in Africa. Uh, They're looking for markets of scale, and they're looking for improvements in transparency and in rule of law. We can help deliver that, and I think this is a great bill, and I look forward to supporting it. Appreciate your testimony
0: and your hard work. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Kane. Thank you,
7: Mr. Chair, and thank you, Ms. Hyde. I want to uh, return to a line of questioning from Senator Menendez about the Northern Triangle, and I want to kind of use the Northern Triangle as an example. Um, I actually think the Northern Triangle is a great example of why regional compacts would make a lot of sense. Um, we know that we're dealing with a lot of policy issues in the Northern Triangle, the unaccompanied minors, violence, some of it driven by, frankly, U.S. citizens' demand for drugs. So it, it's not just that the problems there affect us, but our own problems affect those communities. So there's a connection that's a significant one. Um, I'm, I'm kind of puzzled by why in the Northern Triangle, there's one compact and then two thresholds. Um, and so just in terms of the metrics, I mean, all of these countries have challenges. One of the original motives of MCC was to focus on free market economics. And, and the country that has the compact is probably the one where the private sector most feels oppressed by the government, El Salvador. I'm not saying El Salvador shouldn't have a compact. I'm, I'm supportive, but I think it's interesting yeah. as you look at Guatemala and Honduras, their private sectors probably feel a little more included uh, by the government than the private sector in El Salvador. So if I, I think if you don't move to a regional, you're going to end up with weird anomalies like that. Can you explain that anomaly in the Northern yep. Triangle? Yes.
4: So I think the Northern Triangle outside of Africa is, I agree with you completely, uh, probably one of the best examples of the potential and the opportunity for regional investments. Uh, indeed, we have looked at some of the road segments that we've built in in. uh in those countries, uh, or supported in other ways, and uh, pondered over the opportunity if we were just connecting those roads in and of themselves. So it provides a a very vivid map. Um, uh, to answer your question specifically on the threshold program, um, uh, Guatemala has seen improvements in its scorecard. And uh, as of last year, I believe, was the median, uh, but just below in terms of control of corruption. Uh, Obviously, there was the events of the past year Uh, with the election and the new administration. Um, I was there early in the year uh, at the signing of the threshold program. Um, They have not yet passed the scorecard, um, but if there is a positive trajectory, then they could be a candidate for an upcoming board meeting. Um, Honduras, uh, we had a strong partnership with Honduras. um, uh, Because they
7: were a compact country They were a compact
4: country. Mm -hmm. Um, They experienced uh, political violence as well as at the same time transitioned from a low income to a lower middle income country. So they were being evaluated mm-hmm. against a different peer set um, and their scorecard went down precipitously. I see. Um, so those were the two factors that led us um, to uh, move and transition that. And
7: but the point that you made about the regional compact, the, the funding has supported transportation infrastructure in all three countries and Mm -hmm. it would be so much better because these are nations that do trade with one another if the transportation could link up instead of being kind of just country specific.
4: I would share one more fact on that which is, uh, as you know, the leaders of those nations last year came forward uh, with their own program, Mm -hmm. the Alliance for Progress, uh, to address the root causes of instability that were leading to the unaccompanied minor issue. And what's interesting about the statement that they put out is because each one of them have worked with MCC. They know the MCC model that has uh, the board and the staff and them undertaking it under these controls. And at the last line of that statement, the leaders themselves said, if we are to undertake this program jointly, we would implement it uh, with the MCC model, mm-hmm. and not, not referring to MCC assistance but essentially referring to the doing it the MCC way. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that was uh, one of the best reflections of a country-led uh, approach um, that they would take on and adopt for their own, if that's how they perceive right?
7: And, and that's an additional point about the regional compact. Uh, they're yes. they're act, trying to act regionally and putting a plan on the table. Second question is, is sort of about the coordination of MCC with other forms of aid. So the mm-hmm. president, in his introduced budget, as for a billion dollars for Plan Central America to basically help those three nations with security, governance, economic development challenges. The appropriations process will produce whatever number it produces, mm-hmm. but I'm kind of interested how will we try to leverage whatever is the dollar amount that's appropriated for Plan Central America in the three countries with the MCC involvement in the three countries? Um, because to kind of have just, you know, competing or separate programs might not, again, leverage the dollars to achieve the maximum effect. So from the MCC standpoint, you know, Plan Central America gets funded at X level. What would you do to try to make sure that the work being done in the three nations gets the biggest bang for the I, bucks?
4: I appreciate the question. So first I would say that we've done a constraints to growth analysis in each one of those countries uh, and that we've shared that analysis, in fact, in El Salvador as part of the broader administration effort on partnership for growth. MCC was, um, and we will share the constraints anywhere, but actively working with others to say here's what we've identified in the U.S. government, here's what we've identified as binding constraints to growth, here's what we're able to tackle, here's other pieces for that. And I think that is a value, a public good uh, that MCC brings to the table both uh, in this region and with the U.S. government, but also with the other donor community. Um, the way that we can put within that framework those results. So we would work closely uh, if those programs do materialize. Um, I would say right now with the El Salvador Compact, we are uh, one of the most concentrated and the largest uh, donors seeking to address those root causes mm-hmm. of instability there um, and and would work closely with uh, other partners if it comes to. right.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. We thank you very much for your testimony and uh, your leadership, and I'm sure there will be some follow-up questions that uh, people will ask. Hopefully, you'll answer those promptly, and, and uh, with that, uh, if you'd like to go about your business, that would be good, and we'll, <laughs> we'll bring up another panel, okay? Thank you so much. Thank you, so you Mr. Much. Chairman. Thank, thank you. you. If the other panel would come, come on up. I'd now like to recognize the witnesses that we have for the second panel. Um, the first witness is the Honorable James Colby, Senior Transatlantic Fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the U.S. And uh, James, uh, we've not worked together. I know you uh, had a distinguished career here in Congress. Uh, my staff alluded the same credit to you relative to the creation of MCC, and I want to thank you for. Uh, for all your involvements here and for being here today as a witness. It's much appreciated. I'm sure Senator Cardin. will want to say even more since he served with you. The second witness is the Honorable Andrew Natsios, Director of the Scowcroft Institute of International Affairs and Executive Professor at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M. I want to thank you for being here. We much appreciate that. And Our third witness will be Dr. Nancy Birdsall, President of the Center for Global Development. Thank you so much. Uh, I think you'll understand, if you could summarize in five minutes without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record and Senator Cardinai and others look forward to questioning. And I guess if you would, why don't we just start in the, and go through the order in which I introduced you, if that's okay. And I don't know if you want to say anything introductory. Uh, I'll reserve. I, I just really want to point out with Jim Colby,
1: during the time of his leadership in the House, it was a period where Development assistance was extremely difficult to support. Uh, I think there's greater understanding today about the importance of development assistance, but Jim Colby was the leader in the House of Representatives for connecting the importance of U.S. engagement internationally on the development assistance program. So Jim, it's wonderful to have you back here. Thank you.
0: So if you would start, um, thank you again for being here, sir. Well,
8: th- thank you, Mr. Chairman. and and. Ranking Member Cardin, thank you, especially for your very generous uh, remarks, uh, overly generous remarks I should say, about my role in all of this, but it, I am pleased to be here today. It's a, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to testify on the subject of the Millennium Challenge Corporation. It's an important, it's a timely hearing uh, as the MCC passes its 10-year 10, 10 mark, and I want to commend the CEO, Ms. Dana Hyde, for looking ahead and for her commitment to keeping the agency at the forefront of what I consider to be good development practice. I'm also delighted to be joined by my distinguished colleagues on this panel, Andrew Natsios and Dr. Nancy Birdsall, whom I've worked with on various occasions, and I won't go more into detail because of the limited time here. As as Senator Cardin pointed out in 2004, uh, the Foreign Operations Subcommittee of House Appropriations, which I chaired at that time, worked to pass with strong bipartisan support Uh, the legislation creating the Millennium Challenge Corporation. MCC did represent a new approach to foreign assistance with a radical departure from the way programs had been designed and countries designated for foreign assistance in the past. It was designed with the singular mission of reducing poverty through economic growth in the world's poorest but relatively well-governed countries. The MCC's model of assistance is focused on four sound principles. First, selectivity in determining which countries Uh, to partner based on agreed upon criteria, objectively measured and objectively applied. Second, a business-like approach to choosing investments. Third, a focus on country ownership. Fourth, a rigorous commitment to transparency and accountability. MCC partners must demonstrate a commitment to ruling justly, investing in their people, and supporting democratic rights. Over its decade-long existence, the MCC has demonstrated, I believe, that this model does work. By working exclusively with countries that demonstrate commitment to good governance, the rule of law, and of economic freedom, the MCC has had the multiplying effect of compelling low-income countries, even those who don't currently partner with the Millennium Challenge Corporation, to reform institutions, change laws, improve how they operate in order to try to qualify for MCC assistance, what was called the MCC effect that you heard about earlier. As we peer over the horizon of the next 10 years, I want to offer just a couple of reflections on how I think MCC can continue to stay on the cutting edge of development while remaining true to its original intent. First, there's always going to be a temptation by policymakers in the executive branch and here in Congress to allow new priorities to interfere with MCC's core values. The MCC should not allow itself to succumb to other considerations, strategic or otherwise, that are inconsistent with or run counter to MCC's fundamental approach. Long-term development requires focus and discipline. It cannot and should not be an instrument of day-to-day diplomatic engagement or set aside in order to respond to the political crisis of the day. What has made the MCC successful has been its unwavering commitment to the principles upon which it was founded. Democracy, rule of law, good governance, and transparency principles that are deeply embedded in the American value system. But a desire for democratic decision-making, to have a government free of corruption, to be shielded by the adherence to the rule of law, these are not exclusively American values. Other countries want them as well. When the MCC was established, it included in the founding legislation a private sector component of the MCC's board, four private sector members. These members have worked in a bipartisan fashion in years that have passed in successive administrations to honor the MCC's mandate by maintaining the rightful focus on the MCC's development objectives, even when confronted with sometimes unrelated policy priorities and emergencies. Second, I think the MCC model has always been built on the idea of partnerships with developing countries, setting the course for engagement. The MCC has integrated a number of requisite steps to foster inclusiveness and accountability. I'm confident with the passage of time we'll find that one of the long-term benefits of the MCC will prove to be its ability to strengthen the citizen-state compact. Third, the MCC has been a pioneer on transparency, publishing the data elements from the start of compact through to its completion. This dogged adherence to openness ensures accountability both for U.S. taxpayers and for the citizens of participating countries. I applaud the MCC's interest in concurrent compact authority. I won't go into detail. You had a good discussion of that with the CEO here. But I think that the concurrent compacts would allow the MCC to break up in implementation of compact components between fiscal years. Such authority would provide more flexibility to the existing five-year model employed by MCC. The MCC explicitly has legal authority to negotiate co-investment agreements with private sector Public-private partnerships are necessary for the MCC to achieve its mission in an era of limited government resources. MCC's uh, control of corruption indicator needs to be strengthened, allowing for greater distinction between those countries that are meeting the criteria and those that are not. Good governance does not equate to lack of corruption. Better data is needed for the MCC uh, corruption index. The MCC also needs to take a closer look at low-income countries and the lower middle income countries categories to ensure that we are targeting the right set of countries with our assistance. As you just heard, the world has changed since MCC was created. There are, the, the, thankfully, the pool of countries that are at the economic bottom is shrinking. And so we need to look today to see whether the 25% cap on funds for the lower middle income countries is appropriate in today's world. So these are just a few of the things that I would mention to you in conclusion Let me just say that I believe that the MCC has shown itself to be a game changer in how we look at development assistance, engage partner countries, achieve meaningful development outcomes that are measurable and clear. After 10 years, it's only appropriate that you look at today how the agency is working and how it can be strengthened to do even better. But I am convinced that given the attributes of the MCC and its performance-driven mission, I have no doubt that it will remain up to the challenge, and I look forward to answering any questions you might have.
0: Thank you very much. Mr. Nazios. Thank you very
9: much, Senator Cork. Thank you very much for your invitation to speak. Uh, I uh, haven't been before your committee in a few years since I, I think I was envoy to Sudan. Um, The MCC makes three major contributions to the international development practice. First, the MCC relies on uh, transparent and readily available indicators to select countries for participation in compacts. This has several advantageous uh, aspects to it, Uh, one of which is that countries know ahead of time what is is expected. Secondly, the MCC compiles the data it uses these 20 indicators and publishes it, and those scorecards are used even beyond MCC. Business community looks at these scorecards to see where countries are. Thirdly, and most importantly, compacts are locally designed, driven, and carried out. And I want to emphasize that perhaps the most important but least understood aspect of the strengths of the MCC are its decentralization. Our aid program, other than MCC, has become more and more centralized over the last 10 years. Now, this has been done, uh, Carol Lancaster, the former dean of the Walsh School at Georgetown, said it was by stealth, this stealth takeover of AID by state, by OMBs, growing control in terms of demands for indicators for everything, and uh, short timelines for projects. The old AID during the Cold War had 20-year projects. Uh, the, uh, if you call someone to get your computer repaired, the person you get may come from India, and they probably were educated at an engineering school. There are 20 of the, uh, 13 of them that were built by AID in the 50s and 60s. We linked them between uh, 13 engineering schools in the United States and 13 these schools that we built in India. Most Indians don't know that it was AID that built those schools or AID's predecessor. It was the U.S. that did it the premier engineering school in India was the one that linked with MIT for 20 years under these projects. We don't do 20 projects anymore, 20-year projects. We stopped doing that a long time ago. We went to 10-year projects, then to five-year projects, and a lot of the career people tell me now because of the control that state has, they're one-year projects. Even though it says five years, every year they review everything, and if they need money, they shut a project down and move the money somewhere else. It's very destructive to the development process to have one-year projects. Someone in the administration, privately, described our aid program over both the Bush and, admi- and Obama administration in Afghanistan as 13 one-year projects, one-year programs. And that was one of the problems that hasn't been looked at at all. Professor Dan Honig at the uh, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced National Studies did a a detailed analysis of 8,000 aid projects from five or six different aid agencies, the World Bank, AID, DFID, the British Aid Agency, and he looked at the degree of autonomy of local managers versus highly centralized systems where everything has to be approved at the headquarters. And he found a significantly higher level of success in highly decentralized systems. AID used to be the most decentralized aid agency in the world, and everybody was jealous because they could actually make decisions in the field without going to Washington all the time. That has been reversed in the last 10 years, and it's, I think, disastrous. The only holdout in the old, in the old system of decentralization is the MCC. That's not discussed much, but in my view, it's extremely important. Um, I think the, the second issue I think that we need to look at is the issue of who we're competing with. China has an entirely new model, it's not a new model, it's the model we used in the 50s and 60s. It was an infrastructure-based model for development. What has led to the 12% growth rates, of course that's collapsed now, but for 20 years in China was the focus on infrastructure. Most of their, their development, in fact, was physical development. It was building buildings, dams, bridges, uh, ports, and highways, and, uh, and rural roads. And, and that does open up the development project. We stopped doing those projects a long time ago. They, they said it was too expensive, it took too long to build them and maintain them, and the consequence of that is we've, the whole, all the Western donors and the World Bank have opened up the field to China, which is now filling the gap. The third uh, question I would like to raise here is the relative independence of the MCC from the use of aid for geostrategic purposes. Now, I I was a diplomat for a year and a half. I know how important the aid programs are to our national security. If the State Department or the Defense Department wishes to use aid for very short-term strategic purposes, they have an account to do that. It's called the ASF account. The Congress appropriates money every year to that account. They should use that account. What they're doing now is using AID money and MCC money I might add, inappropriately, even under federal statute. I I think it's on the edge of, frankly, being illegal sometimes when they do this. Uh, They will, uh, 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 several countries have been approved for compacts that are not eligible, clearly, we're not eligible. The MCC staff strenuously opposed it, AID opposed it, and the State Department, for strategic reasons, approved a couple of these countries. I don't want to go into the details here, I'm happy to do it privately. There are national security issues addressed. I understand why they did it from a diplomatic standpoint, but these countries were well below the corruption index requirement. Uh, So I think uh, I completely agree with Jim Colby's comments on the importance of separating the MCC from the strategic short-term interest of the United States. That's not the purpose of the program. It's clear in the statute that wasn't the purpose. If they need to make those kind of commitments, do it through the ESF account. Anyway, those are my comments. I, I endorse the program. I think it's very important, but I, I, I think we need to protect the MCC's original uh, mandate in the original legislation.
0: Thank you, thank you very much. Dr. Birdsall.
9: Uh, I,
10: Chairman Corker. If,
0: if I could, just so we don't leave that hanging, um, we, we are gonna wanna meet with you privately to ascertain whether what you just said relative to um, some of the things that may be happening at MCC and USAID are occurring. Uh, we want to set that meeting up and Senator Cardin and I both will a- attend that. Okay. Thank
10: you. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, thank you for this timely hearing. I'm very pri- privileged to have the chance to testify. When MCC was created by the Bush administration, it was a bold bipartisan experiment, as we've heard, consistent with American values and foreign policy objectives. The idea was to support countries where the need is great and where foreign aid is most likely to be effective. What's equally important, as we've heard about the agency, is that over the last decade, MCC has set the standard in the aid community in other ways using evidence to guide decision-making, focusing on results, adhering, as Congressman Colby said, doggedly to transparency, and uh, partnering with countries in a way that ensures the countries take the lead in their own development. In quantitative assessments by my organization and the Brookings Institution, MCC has consistently scored near the top of more than 150 aid agencies around the world, on aid effectiveness measures. Today I want to focus on two areas where congressional action is needed to allow MCC to continue to build on its record of success, and two areas where continued support from Congress will help the agency deliver even more of a development impact. And I'll close with a plea to Congress about how to help USAID move in the direction uh, by applying some lessons, the lessons learned from MCC. First, regional compacts, which we've heard much about. I recommend that Congress authorize MCC to undertake a pilot project at the regional level, with separate and additional funds above its country-based compact funds. Why? As you've heard, MCC has been active on the African continent, especially on major infrastructure investments like roads and power. But with 54 small economies, the region's market is highly fragmented. The economic future for Africa is therefore in the kind of cross-border investments in Africa that you could compare to what the US did during the Eisenhower administration with the interstate highway system. Cross-border power projects in West Africa are probably the biggest impact opportunity for MCC right now. the experience of the World Bank and the multilateral development banks on regional projects involving two or more countries, is, it, the experience is it's really hard to do. Negotiations are far more complex and take longer, and transactions costs and administrative costs are higher than with single country projects. The point, however, is that MCC has two, two big advantages over the multilateral development banks. It has grant financing and the confidence that the U.S. government and U.S. businesses are involved in these projects. That's an asset, as Dana Hyde said. I'm therefore pleased that Congress is considering concurrent compact authority for MCC. Without concurrent authority, there's little incentive for the agency and little incentive for countries that are eligible to go regional despite the huge potential returns. Mm -hmm. Second, the issue of country candidacy. The MCC mandate is to focus on poor countries, itself a good idea, below currently GNI per capita of just over $4,000. More fundamentally, I think it is to work with responsible governments in countries with a lot of poor people to help them grow into middle-class societies where the middle class eventually helps entrench and sustain responsible government without outside support. The problem is that the current cutoff leaves out still poor countries that in every other respect would qualify for MCC compacts, but where the vast, and where the vast number of people live well below the U.S. poverty line, well short of what we would call even lower middle class. Consider Tunisia a struggling democracy in a difficult region, where most people live well below the US poverty line, or Mongolia, which at the moment is at risk uh, for losing a second compact because its per capita income, GNI, has risen, where most people are still poor and poorly educated, but where GNI is above the cutoff slightly, Uh, because of recent foreign investment in its mining sector. U.S. support can help build uh, a good government there, it can help a good government there create the institutions and make the investments that are still needed desperately in roads, schools, etc. that will spread that wealth to its people, but it will take time in effect building a middle-class society. So I recommend that Congress ask the MCC to explore other measures to define country candidacy in terms of need that are more sensible reflections of a country's long-run needs. Now I want to go to two issues where Congress can encourage even greater MCC impact. One is a focus on funding measurable, verified development outcomes. I recommend that Congress encourage MCC's ongoing efforts to pilot what we call pay-for-performance approaches like cash on delivery aid and development impact bonds. With this approach, U.S. taxpayer money goes out the door only when development outcomes are achieved, like the number of additional households with affordable electricity access, not just when new power, not just paying for new power lines, but paying for the outcome that we want of access to electricity. These kinds of, uh, This kind of approach um, definitely creates greater country ownership and accountability of the, t- of the kind that MCC has pushed on so effectively. Second issue uh, for where Congress can help with its support is the idea of subsequent contact, compacts, second round compacts. I recommend Congress continue to allow MCC to enter into subsequent compacts. Development simply does not happen in five years, even with the most successful partnership. Subsequent compacts should not be automatic, but MCC should have the discretion to enter into subsequent compacts where warranted. Finally, let me close by encouraging Congress to take the MCC ethos beyond MCC. MCC has benefited from the start with a clear mandate to focus on aid effectiveness. in contrast, is burdened after over 50 years with an accumulation of congressional earmarks by country and sector, as well as other d- directives. I recommend Congress ask USAID to prepare a review of the directives and informal mandates that reduce its flexibility undermine and undermine its ability, the ability of its excellent staff to maximize the impact of American taxpayers foreign aid dollars. Thank you very much. Thank
1: you all for your testimony. Uh, Senator Corker has gone to vote. There's a vote on right now. I'm going to ask questions for the record, so I'll pass. I will want to follow up on the issue Mr. Narcissus raised on the objectivity of, of decision making and Congressman Colby on your point about how we can improve the corruption efforts and the corruption
2: efforts by MCC. Senator Purdue, I'll be very brief. We have to go make this vote. Thank you for your testimony and your work. Um, as I mentioned to the earlier panel, I'm, I'm concerned about the fact that because 40% of the money we've spent in the last seven years is borrowed, uh, we, we borrowed some $50 billion to support our USAID and our MCC work over the last just seven years alone. And so, um, Congressman, I applaud what you guys did. Uh, it's funny how fast 10 years goes by. In that period of time, the earlier testimony was that of the programs that we have done, some 58, are averaging about 16% return versus the 10% threshold. In that period of time, though, there are some 21 projects that were done without having uh, met the threshold for internal rate of return, or weren't uh, the C, the benefit cost analysis wasn't even calculated. My concern, and then there there in addition, there were two um, specific projects where it looks like there was undue influence. For strategic reasons, for approval for a project without MCC or without without MCC doing a uh, benefit cost analysis. So my question goes back to the original thinking. Given that over that period of time we spend of a billion dollars uh, a year, we spend a hundred million dollars in our own overhead in managing that, which means the last ten years we spent a billion dollars in overhead that didn't help, didn't go to any direct help. Wh- what's the what was the original thinking and and how was that debate? Um, one, with regard to why versus charging a, a part of USAID to focus on um, eliminating poverty through economic growth?
8: Well, I'll, I'll take a stab at it, and I'm sure Ms. Nazios will also have, a, have an answer. I, I think the—first of all, I want to say that I, I do disagree a little bit with the CEO, Ms. Dana, in saying that there's never been any pressure on MCC, that's not true, there has been pressure from the get-go during the Bush administration as well as uh, ongoing. And I think it's a natural thing that the State Department and others are gonna say, but you know, we have some strategic interests. But don't we have to protect? That's what we need to do is, what the role of Congress is, is to make sure that it's protected from doing that. And I think the outside independent private sector board members have been the critical factor in making sure that that happens.
2: Can I ask you another question on that? I don't, I don't want to get you off that line of, of, of answer, but the fact that the board reports directly to the secretary. Uh, he's with, chairman of the board, he's right. He's chairman, so that means that yeah. there, there is no under secretary or, or uh, assistant secretary that has responsibility for MCC, is that correct? That's correct. Is that working out in your mind in terms of, of operational review and maintaining that independence? I,
8: I think it's worked as best that it can. I mean. Uh, I guess you could think of other places that it might report, but I think it's logical that the Secretary of State be the chairman of it and I think the fact that it has a board that includes several agencies plus the four outside members I think has been critical to maintaining the independence of the board. So I think by and large I would agree with Ms. Dana, uh, Ms. Hyde, that it has been successful in resisting for the most part that pressure. Not always, but for the most part it has been successful in doing that. This, to, to go to the thrust of your original question, the idea of it at the time we created was that, that USAID had a different mission and this was the idea here was to work with countries that had a commitment to governance, to good governance and focus solely on that, to that, that they met objective criteria and I can remember from the day we passed that legislation, a line of ambassadors outside my door Uh, lining up to say, how do we get in? How are we gonna get into this? And I would say, it's not up to me. I'm not gonna get you into it. It's gonna be your uh, meeting these criteria that's going to do it. So I think it has been successful in that
9: sense. Thank you. Mr. Uh, Nutsi. I was, thank you. I was deeply involved in the initial drafting. In the original conception of this, AID was supposed to run it. And there was White House intrigue. I don't wanna go into it all president actually twice told his staff he did not want to have two foreign aid agencies, and he did not understand why they kept insisting. So I, I could go into it in some detail. There were personalities involved and a lot of it was well, the question very question what,
2: what should we do? What's the best use of the well,
9: money? Well, I, 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 I argued with two other aid administrators, uh, uh, Peter McPherson, who was aid administrator under Reagan, and Brian Atwood under President Clinton. This is a bipartisan article we wrote for Foreign Affairs, in which we argued we should do what Richard Nixon did in the in the when he became president. He re centralized all of the aid programs in one place, AID. If you wanted to get other domestic agencies involved, like the U.S. Geological Survey has seismologists, I mean AID doesn't have seismologists, so AID would send the money there, not OMB directly. Uh, these agencies had to report to AID and perform, or they would be shut off from money. That's not the case now. We have two dozen different agencies of the federal government doing aid programs all over the world, and they, they don't report to anyone, frankly. I understand. And they don't report to you, I might add. These are domestic—they report domestic committees, and the they, oversight committees domestically don't know anything about this. It's the foreign affairs committees that should be, have the oversight, not all these domestic committees in Congress. in my view. So I have advocated with, my, with Brian Atwood and Peter McPherson in an article that came out in Foreign Affairs in October, November of 2008 to restructure the whole system um, very substantially to, to put these functions back in AID the way, Ni- and Nixon did this might with Hu- Hubert Humphrey, interestingly enough. The, the old adversaries, they got together on these reforms um, in, the, in the late 1960s after Nixon had defeated... Humphrey. But on this, they agreed. We needed a stronger program. Two, um, it's not quite true to say this is new. because In the 80s, and, and I used to tell this to the people designing it, I said we did, because I, I was there. In the 1980s in the 1990s, we have the development fund for Africa, and it was performance-based. You had to perform to get the money. This concept is not new. We had it in place and because of all the massive cuts in aid in the 1990s after the end of the Cold War, the whole program was shut down and the program collapsed. So there is there are roots in the past and we do know it can have an effect because we, we can show that from the record of the 1980s and early 1990s. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
1: We're gonna go into a very short recess. The chairman will be back in a moment to continue.
0: The question, there he is. We're
1: not gonna go into recess.
0: Thank you all. And Whether there's a lot of members here or not, it's good for our record. It's much appreciated. I know you'll have other questions. Uh, I ran to go vote. I know they're going to do the same. I doubt either one of them uh, will be back. And I didn't hear the question Senator Perdue asked, so I apologize if I end up being redundant. But um, is it your opinion, uh, the other two witnesses, uh, Congressman Colby and Dr. Birdsall, that In essence, uh, the USAID programs, which I know is not the focus today, but really has been in many ways minimized uh, due to state's involvement in other strategic interests, Is that something that the two of you share?
10: I think it's actually reasonable to uh, see some of the work of USAID as directed to countries that are strategically important at key moments for the U.S. I don't think that's the issue. I think the difference between MCC and USAID is that MCC had a fresh start. It's not encumbered with, I think you were not here uh, when I said that USAID after 50 years is encumbered with a lot of earmarks and directives and informal mandates. And therefore, inside USAID AID, as a bureaucracy has grown various forms of risk aversion, what Andrew Nazios calls the counter bureaucracy, which is the inspector general functions. All of these make sense, but after 50 years, I do believe it's time to ask USAID to come back to Congress and explain what of these encumbrances might help liberate it to behave more along the lines of the MCC model in those countries that are ready with good government to maximize the impact of US taxpayer support. That's the difference. So I would not support at the moment moving the MCC somehow, sticking it inside USAID or sticking its functions inside USAID. I think that would be misguided. We have something that works. Mm-hmm. Uh, it works very well. It's adhering to the model that Congress uh, mandated at the time of the legislation. And, you know, I'd move more in the direction of helping USAID undo mm-hmm. some of the accretion of burdens that it labors
8: under and that make it less effective.
0: Congressman Colby.
8: Well, I would agree that I don't think that the answer is to put uh, the MCC into USAID. Uh, I would disagree with my good friend Andrew on on that. He's right that there are precedents for this. There are are roots that are found elsewhere. But I think the difference, difference is, as he said, there's some 30, 40, maybe as many as 50 different agencies in the U.S. government that has some... Of its finger into the area of foreign assistance in one way or the other. So the addition of the MCC is not as though you're really adding that much more to the to the to the explosion of these uh, uh, agencies. What I think the MCC is different is that it's taken the criteria, uh, performance based, as he talked about in USAID, it's taken it and put it into writing, into the law, into the standards, and I think that has made a difference. It has had instead of changing with each country or with each kind of project you go to, there is a set of criteria to qualify before you even get to the threshold. And I think that has made a huge difference uh, in these countries and in the kind of assistance that we have given. And I think it's been, it has been transformational. And if you were to ask me the single most important thing that I think the USAID or that uh, the EMCC has been able to do, it has been to change the way these countries think and to try to get into the MCC to make changes internally in their own laws uh, in, in their countries. Can I just
9: add? Yes, to, sir. Senator, um, there are basically four or five different ways to allocate money through aid programs, regardless of which country you're in, Britain, Germany, the United States, Canada, who have uh, countries that have aid programs, or the World Bank. One is a performance-based system. The Development Fund for Africa that I mentioned earlier in the Reagan administration and first Bush administration was performance-based. There are need-based programs. Our, a third of all our aid, $10 billion, is, goes to health programs, about a third. It is the largest sector by far. It is a need-based program. You wouldn't send aid to a country based on their performance for a malaria program. What if they didn't have any malaria? There's no point to having a malaria program if there's no malaria in the country. We respond to health needs, and the aid program actually has a rigorous set of indicators that it uses to allocate money unless the State Department interferes. And When I say they interfere, we should have had an HIV-AIDS program in India or Russia because they had the highest rates of, of increase. When I was aid administrator, the decision was made over my objections to put it in Vietnam. There was no reason to put it in Vietnam except a strategic one, which is we wanted an aid program there. We didn't want anybody complaining about it in Congress who can complain about an HIV-AIDS program. But from technical standpoint, it shouldn't have been in Vietnam. It should have been in India or Russia where the increases are much greater. For the most part, the HIV-AIDS program is where it should be. But there was an exception made in this particular case that was a problem. So um, the third way in which we allocate is based on interest, our national interest. And that's appropriate. And AID should run those programs, but it should come out of the ESF account. Up until the 1990s, when we had a strategic interest like Egypt or Jordan or Israel, that money all came out of ESF. Now we take it out of the DA account, we take it, and we use the MCC for it too. I, I know the, pl- I was in the room when the, <laughs> the decisions were made. And then the decisions were much, were also made after I left. And career people would come and tell me. In one case, the U.S. ambassador to the country that was going to get the MCC and the aid mission director, they didn't want to say it in cables because they were afraid they would get leaked and, and it would cause a huge furor. They came back to Washington to try to stop the compact. Because they said they clearly do not qualify. This is going to be abused. You shouldn't do it, and they did it anyway for strategic reasons. The MCC staff. This, M-
0: this is within MCC.
9: This is within MCC. Yes, and and I can tell you from direct experience, they told me what they said, and they were ignored. I know why they did it. State did it for, for counterterrorism oh, reasons. But but there's a board. No, the board wasn't. The board was overridden. You know, the, the, the thing is, I used to sit in those meetings as aid administrator. The, ch- the chairman of the board is the secretary of state. Just think of who the four secretaries of the state who were under the MCC. Colin Powell, a historic figure, Condi Rice, Senator Clinton, and John Kerry. You're gonna sit there and argue if, as a federal official with the secretary of state sitting there who's insisting that they violate the rules? I think maybe having the secretary of state appoint someone, but not him or herself sitting as the chairman of the board, would be much wiser.
0: Do the other two witnesses agree?
9: It's an interesting concept,
8: and in an ideal world, I think that's, that would be right, but I don't think, you, practically speaking, you can substitute somebody for the Secretary of State. I think the Secretary of State has to be in that position.
0: And, and tell me why you say that.
8: Uh, just because I think of the role that the Secretary of State plays as in, in the overall foreign policy of the United States uh, and I think it's it's uh, the the most significant position and the most significant role and I think it would be difficult to substitute somebody else uh, in that uh, position I, I think politically it's difficult i'm not sure it could could fly here in Congress or would fly with any administration
9: I't think it'll fly politically
10: there are in the world. Well,
0: let me just, uh, so let me just, if I could, I, and I want to hear from you too, uh, Dr. Birdsall. But it seems to me that what you're saying validates some of the criticisms that uh, MCC has, that some of the decisions that they're making are not economic, but based on other interest. And um, it seems to me that a great way of nullifying that would be to ensure that the board was, in fact, truly. Independent, so uh, I guess I'm a little confused by the response.
8: Well, I think maybe you were not in the room when I said that I did disagree with uh, uh, Ms. Hyde uh, in that there had not been pressure on the CEO or on the uh, MCC or did not succumb. I agree with with Andrew that there has been times, and I think there have been times when it has uh, succumbed to that pressure. But by and large, I think it has worked. I think it has worked. In terms of what it was designed to do, I think it, it has worked. As he has pointed out, there is other there are other projects that are specifically designed to focus on our national security needs, and those, as he said, should be done out of ESF. But I think the the Millennium Challenge Corporation it's not perfect, but I do think it has worked by and large as well as can be expected, and it can be it can be. Improved, and as I said in my testimony, I think one of the roles of this committee and of Congress is to be sure that it does have uh, the independence. One of the things that could be considered would be to add another outside uh, director so that you had to have five independent directors and four from government uh, agencies. It was deliberately done the other way around. I might add, when the draft came up, from the Bush administration. It had zero outside directors on it. It was all government. And that was one of the things that we changed uh, to make sure there were outside directors for it.
9: And, and I wasn't on it. the, you, the Congress added the board.
0: Yeah. What, uh, how are those outside board members selected today?
8: They're selected through a list that's provided by the majority leader and the speaker of the house to the president and he selects from that. So it's bipartisan.
0: But in essence, uh, the administration decides who's on the board.
8: Well, but picking from a list that's submitted by the Uh, leadership in Congress.
0: And how how broad is that list typically?
8: It's pretty small, (laughs) the number that's submitted. So then by
0: by virtue of that, basically, the two leaders are decided. Correct. So they, they have... And they, they submit two names each, and
8: and the minority leaders, yeah, yeah So no, I, got the, yeah, I got it. Speaker and majority leader in House and Senate, and the minority leaders in both.
0: Dr. Burtzell,
10: there are type one errors and type two to errors in the world, and we're focusing focusing here on a type one error. I, I would, I would, be very careful about, mandating some change in the current arrangement. I'd I'd want to hear the examples. That Andrew has in mind. How egregious were they? I have a vague recollection in the early years of Georgia being one of the countries that was made eligible for MCC. It was close on all of the other, on all of the various measures, but it didn't meet one or two of them. I'd, I'd be interested in getting back to the committee um, after consulting with staff at CGD who know more about this. I'm I'm much more concerned about type 2 errors. I'm not sure you heard all of my testimony. There are a number of countries. I mentioned Tunisia. I mentioned Mongolia that may not be eligible for another compact because of an increase in its GNI per capita. Mm -hmm. These are countries that can still, they would pass MCC eligibility on all other measures other than this extremely crude need-based GNI per capita, where there are millions of people that are far from middle class, far from working class. So my view is that that, that Congress should ask MCC to look more carefully at that measure because the type two errors are far more important where the MCC model is cut off or never gets started in countries like Tunisia in a very difficult neighborhood, GNI per capita now over $4,000. It doesn't make sense to me. Development is a, it takes longer to develop the institutions and make the investments that MCC can support so that a country like Tunisia is a little bit more solid and entrenched as a democracy that's working well for its people.
0: And those standards are set by Congress right now? The GNI?
10: The GNI is in the,
8: legislation.
0: Yeah. yeah. Just, yes, sir.
8: Could I just add something to that? She used the word close, and I think that's an important point here. Part of the problem, I, as I see it, with the MCC is the must-pass criteria of corruption, which I think is an important standard. But the data is weak on that. Mm -hmm. And the countries tend to cluster right around the median. So it's very easy for one to go just above or just below that we think really doesn't qualify. There are moves from one side to the other. That's why I mentioned in my testimony, I think we need to do some work looking at ways we can strengthen the uh, corruption uh, index and get better data involved. I don't have the answer to that here today, Senator, but I think that's one of the things that does
9: need to be looked at. Senator, yes, if ma'am. I could, I put in my testimony an alternative, because I completely agree with Jim, that the, uh, uh, the, the Transparency International Corruption Index is based on surveys that are, and AID is the largest donor, and has been since Transparency International was formed. We are the largest donor, and we, have get, we helped form them 20, many years ago, long before I was in an AID. And, and um, I respect their work, but what they do is they send surveys out to the business community in the country and say, that you have to pay a bribe. Do you know what happened in one country? It was Kenya. One year, they're one of the most corrupt countries in the world. All of a sudden, there's a big change. They went to the business community and say, you're embarrassing us by putting in that you have to pay bribes. And all of a sudden, Kenya's improved. The same thing happened in the Philippines. Look at the Philippines indicator. They moved from 130, 141 out of 172 countries, one of the worst in the world. Now they're 85. There hasn't been an improvement in corruption problems in, Indonesia, in, in uh, Philippines. It's because they went to the business community and lobbied them to stop writing bad things in these, these questionnaires. A better standard would be the rule of law. We can assess the rule of law and the independence of the court system and how corrupt the police are and how abusive the police are in these countries. Uh, the rule of law, in fact, empirical evidence, the most important factor that causes state failure is the collapse or the non-existence of the rule of law, very weak rule of law. Governance is cent- central to state collapse. And, and the, the empirical evidence from scholars on this is overwhelming. We used to think it was whether there were tribes and ethnic groups fighting and religious, all of it is, is actually of peripheral importance. The centrality of the cause or the central reason for the cause of state failure is the absence of the rule of law and, and bad governance, mm-hmm. and so that, in my view, should be a a a, a, uh, a standard that you, if you can't get above that, you shouldn't be eligible. But I wouldn't use the corruption index alone because it is a questionable uh, methodology. And I so I agree with Jim entirely on that. And I did put this in my testimony, my written testimony. To all three of you, uh,
0: the, I guess, the one of the reasons for this hearing today is a push towards regional compacts. Uh, Just based on what I've, couldn't you share with me your feelings about uh, allowing MCC that flexibility?
10: Uh, I support that. I think that the Congress should give, uh, authorize at least one pilot project uh, at the regional level. Mm -hmm. What I said when you were not here is that we know from the experience of the World Bank and the African Development Bank, these are tough to do. Uh, Bureaucracies don't even want to do them because they take a long time to negotiate, they're more complex, the costs of administering and monitoring and supervising are higher, and countries don't necessarily want to do it if it takes away from their opportunities in their own country compact. So this is an issue where the huge, huge returns are possible, especially in Africa, in West Africa, as Dana Hyde said and I think MCC has the assets to do it, both US credibility that's been built up and grant-based money that can be used to crowd in private money, private, domestic, and foreign investment that's central to energy and infrastructure projects. So I would, I would definitely go for that.
8: Yes, I would support it. Uh, it it's logical to me. Uh, if you take a West African country whose compact has to do with building uh, the uh, infrastructure for farmed market roads and transportation systems, those transportation systems may lead to its border but to a port in the next country. So you really need to have the kind of the ability to do regional. The best example I think that was talked about earlier with Ms. Hyde is the Golden Triangle in Central America. It is impossible to think about El Salvador's economic development without thinking about Honduras and Guatemala. They simply are an entity really to go together as an economically, and you really have to think about them together.
9: I endorse the idea in my testimony as well. Uh, I think they are much more difficult to administer and uh, to get agreement. Many of these countries don't like each other. Just so you know, there's a reason they don't have trade. They put up trade barriers between each other, and I, I had to, when I was aid administrator, the prime minister of one country was, can't you talk to our neighbors, because they're stopping our goods from going through, and I try to negotiate myself, you know, and it was, I would throw up my hand sometimes. So um, I, I think they should get the authority, but I think they're gonna have trouble using it practically. Mm-hmm.
0: So if I could, just to try to draw consensus out of your testimony, uh, first of all, I think, if I understand what all has been said, that, You would prefer to see uh, USAID move in the direction and having the freedom um, and the flexibility that MCC has versus it moving in the other direction. That's a consensus. All three of you support uh, the notion of regional compacts, even though, uh, as has been mentioned, there are many complexities. And thirdly, I think uh, there's agreement that uh, we should really be looking at the standards that are being looked at, whether it's uh, the the you know the national income levels or whether it's uh, the corruption levels. That that's something that Congress uh, really should be looking at. And just for what it's worth, we've we've had real concerns recently um, on a bipartisan basis throughout the almost the entire committee, if not the entire committee, on things like the. Tip report and others um, having a degree of political influence, um, maybe decisions made in Malaysia, Cuba, other places relative to other kinds of things. Don't know if it's true. Think I think many people think possibly that was the case. So you put standards, you would call them type two errors. You would put standards at a higher level than concerns about political influence or or how should we, as we leave here, think about the issue of political influence over decision making? Because I think there's consensus on the first three.
10: Can I make a comment on that? I would say that Congress could ask MCC to bring back to Congress whatever changes in the measures of corruption, for example, and in the use of those measures, the application in terms of standards and this use of where a country is, if it's at the median. Mm-hmm. I don't particularly, at median in terms of the list of countries on, say, behavior, on spending on their people. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not always sensible because of crowding of a group of countries around the median, suppose they're all spending 20% on education and 20% on health. Suppose they all, more or less, you know, slight deviations from that for a country can throw it off the list. So some of this is about wonky data issues of standard errors <laughs> and so on. So my sense is that it would make sense to ask the MCC to come back to Congress with some ideas where changes are needed. Not on the general notion that there should be a scorecard. Not on the general notion that the focus should be on poor countries with sensible government. But on how that's implemented in terms of recent data, better data in some areas, use of statistical measures, we, I see problems there. I mean, one example seems to be, I may not have it exactly right, but we could get back to you on this, that Honduras, when it moved from being a low income country to a lower middle income country, then different standards were attached to it and it was f- missing out for some period on eligibility. Well, in general, the question is, is not you know that now it's in a higher standard group. That doesn't make sense if it's if the trend is correct, as Dana Hyde said. If it's moving in the right direction on something like corruption, you know, if it's if it's better than it was a year ago or two years ago or three years ago, it's it's not sensible to cut it off, which apparently was it was at risk at some point. I mean, maybe it's a bad example because Honduras had many problems, <laughs> but it. It, it clarified for me the problems with the implementation of standards that make sense in principle. How are they, what are the actual measures and how should they be implemented?
0: Well, as a result of that suggestion, I'm, I'll ask my staff now to ensure that that's one of the QFRs we send to, uh, to the director uh, as a result of this meeting. Any other input on, the, on those two issues?
8: I just add that I think I agree with what Dr. Birdsall said, except that you might want to consider adding into that uh, some independent uh, analysis uh, recommendations, whether it's a consortium of universities doing a study or something and not rely just on the MCC to tell you what, how to redo the, re- rejigger the, uh, the criteria for eligibility. Okay. Thank
0: no, you. That, good that's suggestion. a good idea. That's a good suggestion. Yes,
9: sir? Uh, I, I agree with uh, Congressman Colby's suggestion, and with uh, Dr. Berzal on this. There is a book your staff might wanna read. In fact, maybe you shouldn't read it because it'll upset you. It's called Bad Numbers, and it's an academic book. It's not a populist thing. And it looks at a lot of the data the World Bank has collected and different UN agencies have collected in Africa, and a lot of it, frankly, is made up. The notion that we've achieved all the MDGs and all this stuff, a lot of it is simply manufactured stuff for these international conferences. I'm sorry to say that, but there's scholarly evidence now of this. And the the book is, it's a good book. And it's a disturbing book, that we rely too much on numbers. That's why I urged in my testimony that we use qualitative rather than just quantitative measurements, because the, the numbers can be distorted. You saw how they were made up in some of the finance ministries. I think you'd be a little shocked.
0: Well, listen, we uh, we certainly appreciate the expertise, knowledge, background, insights that all three of you provided. Uh, if you would, there'll be additional questions, I know, and if you could, we're going to take questions here in the committee without objection uh, to you by uh, the close of business Thursday. If you could respond fairly quickly, we'd appreciate it. If there's any additional thoughts that you have, you know, over the next few weeks that you'd like to share with our staff, we would much appreciate that. and. Uh, Again, thank you for helping found this, thank you for the tremendous insights that uh, that all of you have relative to, to foreign aid and MCC in and, and general, and uh, with that the meeting is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.